Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. The search for the next Chicago police superintendent is now in the final stages. The short list includes one woman, two black men, and a white cop with ties to the interim superintendent and a deep knowledge of Chicago. For Kim Fox, the Jesse Smollett saga just won't go away. Fox's rivals are hammering away. Kim Fox called for this investigation. She's been hiding behind it in every discussion that we have. And now that part of the result is out, she's claiming it's politics. Frankly, I mean, Ms. Fox has repeatedly not told the truth. Her office is now governed by incompetence and personal dishonesty. Those are just some of the stories we're talking about today on our Friday News Roundup. Joining me around the table this week is Paris Schutz of WTTW, Mick Dumkey of ProPublica, Illinois, and WBEZ's own Patrick Smith. Uh, Patrick, we heard a bit there about Chicago's search for a new top cop. Tell us how that list was determined and what we know about the process so far. The way the process works, you know, people apply and then the police board members go through that, all the applications and decide on a list of six to eight people that they're going to bring in for interviews. That appears to be the point we're at right now. You know, the Tribune talked to, they didn't name their sources, but talked to sources about who's on that list. So these are the people who are going to come in for interviews and then they're going to recommend three of those people to Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Any names stand out to you? Ernest Cato, who's on the list, who's the one uh, interim candidate that that I saw in the story, Uh, he's someone I've heard from uh, gang intervention groups and people who do anti-violence work on the West Side that they really like him, that he he really works closely with them and is a partner in in fighting crime, not just through officers, but other means. So it stood out to me that he was on that list. He only recently got promoted up from from commander of one district. So so I was interested to see him there. Mick, what about you? Well, I was just struck, you know, as Patrick is describing this, you know, it's like sources, unnamed sources. Uh, so, to take uh, with a the, grain of salt. Yeah, well, not just that, but it's, you know, not a very open process at this point right. in time. And I'm, I'm sure there are some reasons for that. People are applying who have currently other jobs and stuff. But for such a sensitive and important position in the city, I just hope that very quickly this becomes more open and transparent. Yeah, to, to piggyback on that, you know, we tried a Freedom of Information request to get that information officially, and they, they denied it, saying they can't, that that's not subject. I was surprised of a name that's not on there, and that's Barbara West, who mm-hmm. was promoted by the interim superintendent to a real top position. She's going to be in charge of constitutional policing, in charge of all the you know, the consent decree stuff. And the way things were going, you really would have really thought that that was kind of the direction they would go for a new top cop, someone that had experience in that area. And she had a lot of supporters. So I'm very surprised she's not on her. She still may be. We just don't know. And then there's another guy, Sean Malinowski, who was the top deputy for Charlie Beck in L.A. He's from Chicago. He came back to work at the crime lab. And Charlie Beck made no bones about the fact that he loved to see this guy take over. Well, Aurora Police Chief Chris and Zeman is the only woman on the reported shortlist. And we sat down with her this morning, asked her about parallels she sees between Aurora and Chicago. She's not confirming that she's actually applied for this job. We should say that out front. But we wanted to hear more about her philosophy on good policing. Let's listen. I firmly believe that we should be having conversations with one another in our in our communities, especially in our neighborhoods of color, because we have a lack of trust there. And so to build legitimacy, you have to build relationships. And in order to build relationships, you have to be human, compassionate. Mick, your thoughts? 
Well, that all makes sense. I think also statistically, at least, I haven't spent. I mean, I haven't spent time in Aurora, so I don't know on the ground what's going on there. Uh, just to be honest about it, but statistically, Aurora has been very successful. I think that their, um, you know, murder violence numbers are far lower population wise than Chicago. On the other hand, Aurora to Chicago, that's a that's a big jump. Those mm-hmm. are world's difference in so many ways. I mean, Patrick, talk about the the issue of insider versus outsider coming in to lead the police department and how rank and file officers might react. It really depends. You hear from officers who say they just want the best person for the job. I think the the union, the FOP has said that they'd like an insider, but also they want the best person for the job. Honestly, I think that there's just a section of the police department that's not going to like who anyone who's chosen. You know, I know that like Gary McCarthy and Jody Weiss were criticized for being outsiders. It's not as if people weren't critical of Eddie Johnson immediately upon him being appointed. So I, I'm i not saying it doesn't matter what rank-and-file cops think, but I, I don't think you're going to be able to please please that people don't like their bosses, and, and with good reason often, but I, I don't know. Speaking I don't from know. personal experience. <laughs> no, I, 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 I want, Your boss anyone... might be listening right now, Patrick. <laughs> be careful. <laughs> well, we spoke to Charlie Beck, uh, the interim police superintendent, last month about uh, the search for a new police chief, and here he is talking about what he's looking for in the next superintendent. You have to look at it as, you know, every chief has to be the right chief for their time. And this time is a very complex, very community-oriented, very much a time when we need somebody that has a, a deft touch on the, on the wheel and is able to understand the complexities of, of what Chicago is dealing with. And, and then on the other side, the violence in Chicago needs a strong hand and a good cop that understands uh, what officers need to address this kind of issue and to push all of that forward. So it it's a really tough job. So thinking about some of that complexity right now, CPD is operating under a federal consent decree. One of the reasons Charlie Beck was brought in is because he has gone through that process with LAPD. What do you think, Pierce? What what should the mayor be prioritizing when it comes to selecting a candidate? Well, that is a priority. But then look at what happened in January. You know, murders uh, were up, what, 55 percent? Shootings were up really high. And even she called the cops in and Charlie Beckin and said, you know, if we don't get a handle on this, we're, we're going to have some of the worst numbers that we've had in decades here, which would be a horrible stain. I mean, the police department's made progress over the last three years in getting those numbers down. So, yes, constitutional policing, um, you know, complying with a consent decree, meeting the deadlines of the consent decree, which they haven't done, that's, that's paramount. But at the same time, you cannot have those numbers go back up after you've made three, four years of steady progress since 2015, that would be it would be politically horrendous for Mayor Lightfoot. She'd be a one term mayor if those numbers just skyrocket. And so the next superintendent's going to have to get a handle on that. Charlie Beck didn't have a lot of answers other than, um, well, the weather's warmer this January than it was last January. And they're still in the midst of this shakeup and he's reorganizing the police department. So someone has got to have a summer crime plan uh, when they come in to make sure those numbers start to dip after a really bad January. Well, and I think that's why you see, you know, the city of Chicago is looking so much to L.A. That's like the the dream, right, right? Mm. where they were able to satisfy a consent decree, trust, reportedly trust between police and community went up and crime went down. Because you do often hear people talk about you can have one or the other. You can have nicer cops or you can have effective crime fighting. 
And the hope for the city is that L.A. proves that that's a false dichotomy. I think that's why Charlie Beck's here. That's why you mentioned Malinowski. I think that's why he's on he's on, he's on the short list. Right. You're listening to the Friday News Roundup here on Reset. When we break down some of the biggest news of the week, our panel today, WBEZ's Patrick Smith, Paris Schutz of WTTW, and Mick Dumkey of ProPublica, Illinois. Some other stories we're watching today. A coalition of Illinois groups is backing new legislation that would bolster the state's ability to dispose of more prescription drugs. Drugs. The Illinois Drug Take Back Act would have drug manufacturers pay for disposal of their unused products. It would also ensure disposal facilities are convenient to citizens. And Illinois State Police say they've stepped up their enforcement of people whose gun permits are revoked. That comes in the wake of last year's mass shooting in Aurora. They have succeeded in getting more people to account for their weapons, but data show the majority of people deemed too dangerous to own a firearm are never forced to give up their guns. I want to turn to another criminal justice story. Former Empire actor Jesse Smollett is once again facing felony disorderly conduct charges for allegedly staging a hate crime on himself last January. And this comes a year after prosecutors dropped nearly identical charges against the actor over the same incident. Patrick, clearly the story isn't going away anytime soon, but quickly explain why he's charged again in this case. You mentioned prosecutors dropping those charges. That was abrupt. There wasn't a good explanation for for why they dropped that case. Um, In fact, right after dropping it, you know, they said they had an agreement with Smollett. He said, I did it. We had an agreement, but this shows that I'm not guilty. Anyway, sorry. Long story short, (laughs) there was a special prosecutor appointed to, to look into this case. He was tasked with trying to figure out whether or not prosecutors did anything wrong here and then also whether or not Smollett should be fully prosecuted for his alleged crimes. Obviously, Dan Webb, the special prosecutor, has decided that he should be prosecuted and... Double jeopardy doesn't apply because there was no trial. There was no plea one way or another so that prosecutors are able to bring these charges again. So that part of the investigation is done. But the other side of it, seeing whether or not prosecutors uh, mishandled the case, is that still ongoing? That's still ongoing. You know, when when Dan Webb brought these new charges, he said, I believe prosecutors handled this case improperly to start with. That's why I'm bringing these charges but he said that doesn't mean there was wrongdoing necessarily. He's still investigating. There's, he's going to file a written report about that part of it when I, I don't know. What well, he did say was that that he disagreed with um, with the office's decision to drop those 16 charges. And the office said, well, we're going to we, we have precedent for this. We do this all the time in similar cases. But then he said they could not turn over any documentation that proved their point that that what happened with Jesse Smollett was was standard and they had handled Many, many similar cases like that. They have no written proof of that. Yeah, yeah, I remember when they dropped those charges, I went and looked at cases where disorderly conduct was the highest charge. There were plenty where the final outcome was community service and a, a payment of a fine, which is what happened with Smollett. But the thing that was really unique was admission, there of, w- guilt. admission of guilt. No admission of guilt, mm-hmm. no actual court oversight, just sort of everything was gone and sealed away. I mean, it tried to hide from the public. That was, I think, one of the most troubling parts and of it. And if I remember correctly, people weren't even aware that this was coming up in a hearing or anything, right? So right. it appeared to circumvent the usual process, um, even for people you know, who are in favor of diversion, uh, people who said he never should have gone to jail for anything, it still struck a lot of people as very unusual, the whole process. Well, as media, we have a duty to report the charges, but it's become a talking point for Kim Fox's opponents in the race for Cook County state's attorney. Is this story not going away because a famous person is involved? 
or because there are valid concerns about how the case was handled, because there are valid concerns about that on the table, Paris? It's, it's definitely both, but there's just questions that are unanswered. That's why it's not going away. We still don't have an adequate explanation. You know, it, it's known that she had that conversation on the phone with Tina Chen, Michelle Obama's former first lady, very close with Valerie Jarrett, that involved this case. And she recused herself, but she still seemed to have her, uh, that Kim Fox still seemed to have her fingerprints on it. And then knowing that there was this involvement, still dropped those charges without any real explanation. So we still need to get to the bottom of what happened. Politically, if this is all that Dan Webb comes up with, then I don't think it hurts Kim Fox that badly politically. Well, and that's the question I have, is whether or not this is really a central issue to voters. I was had a doctor's appointment the other day, and, and a, a news story came on the television in the waiting room about it. And the woman sitting next to me just gave the the heaviest soul deep sigh. She said, I am so tired of this story. Right. And, I, and it made me wonder how much... How much do everyday voters really, really care about this, Mick? Well, I think the people for whom it's important have already made a decision probably about who they'll support or who they won't support. So I don't think the fact that the indictment came through versus just the whole mess of the case up until the point of the indictment, I don't think that really is going to change too many people's minds. I think there's a, a real strong pro-Kim Fox group, you know, or groups out there. And there are people who wouldn't vote for her for anything at this point in time. And I just, I don't think this latest development helps her uh, because she can't change the subject. But I, I just don't think it it necessarily helps her opponents either. Well, what she'll say is don't judge me on one case. I mean, they put a statement out saying, don't judge this one case. Look at all the um, expungement, my record of low-level offense expungement, which is what you elected me to do. She has delivered on that. She's got an enormous uh, support in the African-American community, uh, community leaders, preachers, all that. She got an endorsement today from Senator Tammy Duckworth, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. So unless Dan Webb comes back and says there was massive corruption in the way she handled the Smollett case— I don't think it hurts her politically. Patrick, jump in here. Your thoughts? Well, I, I think that there's people who know a lot about this case who will decide whether or not it's important to them. What I'm curious about is probably a large group of voters who don't know a lot about it and just sort of know there's some kind of cloud of scandal around yeah. her. That I could see that hurting her more than people who know specifically a lot about the case. People who just keep hearing bad stuff. They think they hear bad stuff about her. I don't know how big that chunk of voting is. That, to me, would be the concern for She's for also Fox. got sorry, Trump and he, she's got the Democratic Party support in Cook County. Yeah, that's a, got all that machinery behind her to turn out the vote. So in, until something big breaks about it, that that's not going to change. Plus, she's got three opponents, none of whom has the name recognition no, that she right. does. It just so, remind us who they are. Donna Moore, Bob Fioretti, and, and is it Bill Conway? Bill, Bill Conway, Conway. Yeah. 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 I was afraid I was going to screw that up. But um, he's a former uh, military officer, Bob Fioretti, former alderman, who's now run for several other offices since uh, he was in the city council. And Donna Moore, who's a former prosecutor and has run ran for the state's attorney against Kim Fox four years ago as well. I just don't see – I mean – Conway's got a lot of money. Um, his dad, I think, has given him close to $5 million. So that has sort of made him, at least on the surface, 
the most marketable candidate uh, or opponent of Kim Fox's. But I'm not sure if he particularly has momentum. Uh, you know, Bob Fioretti still has some name recognition. Uh, say what you will about his losing efforts in his last couple of campaigns. So I just don't know if any of the candidates have momentum. It's the old adage, you, you know, you, you can't beat somebody with nobody, right? So mm-hmm. do, any, do any of them have enough to, to cobble together? And if this is an election where, of course, you just need the most votes, you don't need a straight majority or anything. Well, and it's interesting if you look at the candidates, uh, you know, let's take Conway as an example. If you look at his platform, it's really not significantly different than Fox. Um, you know what he says he wants. It's not as if anyone in in the Democratic primary has like has gone to the law and order. We need to you know, we're just going to throw the book at people. That's not anyone's tactic. Conway is basically running as Kim Fox, but without the Smollett thing, essentially. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. So members of the Obama Community Benefits Agreement Coalition or the Obama CBA Coalition staged a sit-in protest outside Mayor Lori Lightfoot's office. Paris, tell us what was going on. Well, they've been uh, arguing for a community benefits agreement for years. Um, What they want now is any new housing that's built around the Obama Center, they want 30 percent of that set aside for affordable housing. And um, because their concern is that this big, new, gleaming tourist attraction comes in, it's going to raise property values. It's going to push people out of their homes. Mayor Lightfoot says we're negotiating. Um, Obama himself has said in the past he is opposed to this idea of signing agreement, a contractually binding agreement. A, he's like, well, who is the community? Why why is this group or that group representative of the entire community? How do, how do I know that there aren't other folks in the community that don't want this, that, that want the higher property values? That that's the point here is that we're trying to improve uh, the community. We're trying, to, we're trying to bring new construction and new businesses. So, um, But they've been very organized. You know, the thing that's ironic is th- they're – they're doing the thing that Barack Obama taught community members to, me. to do 30 <laughs> right, years ago, right. and they're doing it against uh, Obama. So Lightfoot is, you know, she's got a tough, uh, she's got a tough line uh, to toe here. I mean, she's going to have to come up with something that that makes them happy. But well, the, and there was they, a proposal that she she right. put forward. What was included and in that? Other aldermen have put forth other proposals. They're still negotiating. Yeah. It basically comes down to how much is going to be affordable housing. All the city-owned property there is that going to go to affordable housing? You know, because she can't have the Obamas say, well, you know, we're going to pack up and leave now. You yeah, know? So, right. And I, I think the mayor's proposal was deemed just too weak. There wasn't enough commitment behind it. The uh, 20th Ward Alderman, Jeanette Taylor, who was elected largely you know, on the promise to, to work on this, uh, the community benefits agreement, said it just didn't go far enough and that they had already put forward their own plan and weren't looped into to hers. Um, and it also strikes me, Paris, that in addition to the groups doing what Obama used to do, Obama sounds like one of the officials he <laughs> yeah. used to protest against by saying, well, who's really the community there? It's a very lawyerly uh, public official kind of response to some pesky demonstrators. Well, we sat down with two members of the Obama CBA coalition this week to talk about the protest and what they want to see from the mayor around the issue. Let's take a listen. We're demanding that displacements not happen around the Obama Center. We want to see affordable housing required. Uh, We're particularly concerned about the city-owned vacant land. Um, There's over 200 vacant lots that the city owns that are zoned for residential. 
that we believe need to host affordable housing that current residents can actually afford to live there. You know, Patrick, when we were in that conversation, one of the things they they focused in on were elders in in the neighborhood and some people already uh, being forced out or feeling very uncertain about their housing future because their lease is about to come up and they have no idea what the landlord is going to do. It occurs to me that, that Mayor Lightfoot's in sort of an interesting position because during her campaign, she backed a community benefits agreement. So what needle does she need to thread here? Because this is the difference between a campaign and actually <laughs> governing. <laughs> well, you you just said it. I mean, yeah, that, that's a – I don't know how you thread being in support of something and then being opposed to something. I mean, it's What she's trying to do is come up with – with her own plan, it's interesting that the the protesters are already saying we weren't not already, but immediately said we weren't a part of this agreement. You know, it does seem like if you're trying to reach a compromise, you need to bring the people who are actually you know at odds to the table to work out something out. I don't know if that's possible here. It kind of depends how much Lightfoot's actually willing to 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 agree to in writing. You know, I, I do think about that. I don't know what the right solution here is, but yeah, I mean, if you think about President Obama back when he was a community organizer, I don't think he would have accepted. We agree with you. We just don't want to to sign our name to it. You know, we just don't want to put it in writing. That mm-hmm. that's something that that for obvious reasons, you know, people who are who are protesting this would would be against. I mean, Mick, what are your thoughts about about this difference between <laughs> campaign talk and what happens when you're in the office? And this is something we've talked about. Mm-hmm. We Mayor Lightfoot had, hadn't held. Um, elected office before she became mayor of Chicago. And there was a question about, okay, once you're actually in that position, once you actually have to govern and pull together coalitions of people to get your agenda passed, what is that going to look like? Absolutely. I mean, this happens to some degree after every election cycle, right? But uh, particularly notable this time around when uh, we had the incumbent mayor step aside and you had a bunch of candidates come in who all in the, in the current environment were basically trying to out-progressive each other. Right. And uh, Lori Lightfoot uh, was dismissed by some of the critics on the left as, oh, she's a former cop because she had been a prosecutor. She had done corp- practiced corporate law. So a lot of people were questioning that she had these actual progressive credentials. And so she made a lot of promises. She quickly disappointed people, even before she took office. We remember about the Lincoln Yards, mm-hmm. the way she handled mm-hmm. the Lincoln Yards development on the north side. Um, she essentially stopped trying to fight it and let it go through in the, the waning days of the Emanuel administration. And we've just seen this in a series of other things as well. So this is kind of the latest thorny issue where it turns out, hey, I'm in favor of this. And then you get in and the details a lot more are a lot more complicated than it was in your, during your stump speech. Right. I'm reminded of the the new police academy where at one point Lightfoot said, yeah, I'm opposed to the, to the new police academy. But the thing she wasn't saying was she was opposed to it because she didn't think it was big enough that they were spending enough <laughs> money on it, which, yeah, maybe speaks to the way one massages things during a campaign. Well, Mayor Lightfoot has actually pulled the plug on her own plan to end mm. automatic control over business signs. She has promised to end automatic prerogative over zoning, but that will require city council approval. Paris, just break down what's happening well, this, here. So the last conversation leads perfectly into this. You know, she, the, we're used to mayors in Chicago that get their way and city council is compliant. She had to pull the plug on this uh, because she was going to lose. And the aldermen were not going to go along with this notion that they can't, it seems little, I mean, but, you know, um, approving a permit for a sign. This is, this is one of the ways they exert their power and control over their wards, and it's also one of the ways that leads to corruption where businesses who want something, they might give a little cash to the, to the aldermen's campaign. 
but she came in and said, we're going to end aldermanic prerogative. This, is, this decision is going to be moved to the business affairs and consumer department in the executive branch here in my office. And the alderman said no. And then she had to pull the ordinance because she was not going to win on this one. So you're seeing some pushback now. I mean, there was a vote at the end of last year on the pot shops that, that was close, that she needed to have some maneuvering to win. Now it, it's clear that she's not going to win some of these votes, especially when it comes to taking aldermanic power away. So is she politically weakened? Um, is city council exerting itself as a strong city council, which we have not seen uh, in 30-plus years? Well, and I also That's a story wonder to whether watch we're just here. seeing some alliances start to form in city sure. council that didn't exist right after the election. Well, I mean, sure. she did not have a strong um, group of allies in city council. She had some aldermen that were her allies. But when you look at the, there's the Black Caucus, there's the Progressive Caucus, there's the Hispanic Caucus. Neither of those groups are firmly in her camp. They're not opposed to her, but there could be some alignment among them against her. So we, we, that's going to be an interesting dynamic to watch over the year. Mick, jump in here. Yeah, she's got some of the people who are the former progressives who are now part of her team, who are leading city council committees. And then you had a wave of uh, even people who are further to the left who got elected last year. So there's a lot of, there, there's a, I think there's a much broader range of, of thought. And uh, there's a feeling that not everybody owes their seat to the, the insiders in a way that they used to. So you're going to continue to see these shifting alliances. I just very quickly like to come back to the, this particular proposal. There's also the possibility, this just isn't very good policy. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I have written about, many other people have written about how the city council spends so much of his time on this micro level, mm -hmm. minutia kinds of stuff. And uh, that coupled with Ed Burke uh, corrupt and corruption stuff that's been out in the last year, you know, Lori Lightfoot came in and, and issued her, her decrees right when she came in to office, her executive orders basically saying she's going to work to end aldermanic prerogative. But when you get right down to it, it is a legitimate question. Who should make this decision about a sign if it looks good or if it doesn't look good? Probably 90% of these things are pro forma. It's, it's paperwork. Yeah. But in the event that there's not, shouldn't there be some sort of local control? So I think it's a little, again, it's a little more complicated than the campaign rhetoric. And you get into office, you actually have to govern, you have to work through the complications. It's just not as easy. I'm really interested in that. This is an example of how the council works. Because yeah, I've read uh, your writing and others that that's pretty persuasive of that the city council should be thinking about bigger, you know, they should have a role in more important things than, than signage. But yeah, also, who, if I'm a resident, who do I want deciding whether or not a new business gets built or what a sign looks like or how zoning has changed? I want that to be someone who's close to me, who knows what's going on in, in, in my community. I'll say that part of me is a little depressed about the idea that like the thing the city council will rise up and fight the powerful <laughs> mayor on is signage. It's about their own power. It's not as sure. if we're talking about, oh, they're building coalitions because they have they have their own, you know, agenda beyond just maintaining their own power. We're seeing the city council, though, be more of a legislative branch on big policy than ever before. Like just this week, you know, passing a resolution declaring a climate emergency, mm -hmm. 
in Chicago. So tackling these big issues that are much different than who's going to get a sign, are the trees trimmed, which is what they've done in the past. So I do think we are moving toward a more legislative policy-oriented city council. Is it be careful what you wish for, or it's is that going to be what we want? Well, we want, we want a balance. There should be a tension. These things, I don't think, should be answered cleanly for all times with every yeah, single right. issue. And even a little thing, a seemingly little thing like the signage, I'm actually encouraged by this debate and this discussion because for so long we all watched the city council handing its power over to the mayor. Basically, you do whatever you want. We'll give it all away. Just kind of leave us alone to, to rule over our little fiefdoms. So now it's there, there's a discussion going on even if it's about their fiefdoms. It's weird, you guys, but at least, <laughs> at least there's a conversation happening and I think that's encouraging. You're listening to the Friday News Roundup here on Reset. When we break down some of the biggest news of the week, our panel today, WBEZ's Patrick Rick Smith, we've got Paris Schutz of WTTW, and McDumkey of ProPublica, Illinois. I just want to circle back to something we, we briefly spoke about in the first part of this conversation. On Tuesday, Mayor Lightfoot summoned interim police superintendent Charlie Beck and 41 police commanders to City Hall for a meeting. She calls accountability Tuesday. Paris, what can you tell us about that? Well, this is what she did with Eddie Johnson every week um, when the numbers weren't very good. And I don't know that she had been doing this with Charlie Beck, but then she, we had the, f- the worst February weekend. In, what in, was it 30 years that the, the city seen? So she needed... It's deadliest February in 18, 18 years. 18 years. Okay. Yeah. Deadliest mm-hmm. February in 18 years. So she needed to publicly um, do something and look like she was taking charge of this because, like, like we said, we, you can't let those numbers continue that way. So she called them in. And, um, you know, what's going on, guys? What, what, what are we going to do about it? And that's when Charlie Beck said, well, you know, we're still in the reorganization. The weather was warmer. Um, you know, we, we got to get better. But what can you really say? I mean, to a certain extent, you can't really control the crime numbers. It's going to ebb and flow. So on a micro level like this, when we're looking week to week, month to month. What, what can Charlie Beck say? So, well, we've got this. We know why this happened. We've got it under control. Well, and Patrick, Charlie Beck isn't going to be here permanently. So how much... Does this time of transition in CPD affect how effective the police department can be right now? Well, he won't be here permanently, but he's making changes that are going to – they may not be permanent changes, but that are going to last for a long time. And, yeah, he, he doubled down on, on what he's done and said that the the reorganization that he announced at the end of last year, that that's – the end of last month, excuse me. The, the reorganization he announced that that's going to help because it gets, gets more people out to the districts, gets more people to the area where a lot of violent crime is occurring. I, I, Paris is exactly right, though. I'm I'm picturing – criminologists cringing when right. they hear about a weekend being a reason to to reassess or look at, at at what we're doing on violent crime. You just you cannot make strategic decisions based on a week, a month, a day. And if the city is doing that, I, I don't know that they are, but if they if they are, that is a mistake. Say more troubling is that Tribune investigation about the clearance rate, um, you know, because they're they're touting these the clearance rate is always terrible, abysmal in Chicago, and they're saying, well, now it's around it's it's past fifty percent. We're doing much better. And then the Tribune did this fascinating investigation looking into what are those numbers, and it's higher. It was be- the Sun Times. Uh, yeah, I was oh, I'm sorry. The Tribune has done some great really work sorry. the last couple of weeks, but that one was no, the credit, Sun credit, Times. Well, the, well, the tri- credit work credit. The Tribune tri- reported on bail reform. On bail reform. Yeah. Yeah, right, and, and right, they did right. this analysis, uh, looked at this analysis by Cook County Chief Judge Timothy Evans, and they say it's based on flawed data. Uh, let's listen to a quick clip. We found that the main study produced by Chief Judge Timothy Evans to support his initiative of bail reforms uh, contained data that was flawed. It contained analytic methods that also were flawed and uh, conclusions 
about the impacts of those reforms that were overstated. So his report was released in May, and it noted that Chicago saw no increase in violent crime after judges began implementing bail reforms, but his office's definition of violent crime was limited to six crimes. Patrick, really quickly, tell us why why this matters. Well, it matters because we need to have accurate information, and, and our public agencies should be transparent. But I I will say that that the Tribune did a great job by by you know making sure that that our public officials are telling the truth and being transparent. But they didn't come to any conclusions here, and I think it's easy to read their story and think. Oh, they're saying actually bail reform is making us less safe. They they did not say this in this. All they said was that this report, we need more data to, to really analyze it. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. That's it for the Friday News Roundup. Thanks to our panel today, WBEZ criminal justice reporter Patrick Smith, WTTW host and political correspondent Paris Schutz, and ProPublica Illinois reporter and columnist Mick Dumkey. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you. And that's today's Reset. Join us for the Sunday edition of the podcast when we sit down with stage and screen actor Carrie Coon. You may have seen her in the third season of Fargo on FX or in Avengers Infinity War. Well, now she's starring in the play Bug at Steppenwolf Theater. Until then, have a great weekend. I'm Jen White. Let's talk again soon.